0: No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.
1: Hi, everyone, and thank you for tuning in to the 284th episode of Awards Chatter, the Hollywood Reporters Awards podcast, which is presented today by Bravo's Dirty John, Below Deck, Watch What Happens Live with Andy Cohen, Top Chef, and Project Runway for your Emmy consideration. I'm the host, Scott Feinberg, and my guest today is one of the greatest fashion designers and costume designers in history. The New York Times has said he is, quote, responsible for some of the most instantly recognizable costumes of all time, close quote. Carol Burnett has said, quote, I didn't know what I'd do with a character until he did the outfit, close quote. Dionne Vreeland said his, quote, superb clothes are not equaled in even French workrooms, close quote. And he himself has said, quote, a woman who wears my clothes is not afraid to be noticed. Close quote. This is a man who, over the course of some 60 years in the business, has worked with Judy Garland, Mitzi Gaynor, Carol Burnett, Cher, Diana Ross, Barbara Streisand, Tina Turner, Ann Margaret, Liza Minnelli, Bette Midler, Elton John, and so many others. But he is perhaps best known for his work on 11 seasons of The Carol Burnett Show and multiple variety shows featuring Sonny and Cher. A 2002 inductee into the Television Hall of Fame, a 32-time Emmy nominee who has won nine Emmys, including the first one ever presented for costume design, a three-time Oscar nominee, and this year, for the first time, a Tony nominee who is the front runner to win for his work on The Cher Show, in which he is also portrayed as a character, the Sultan of Sequins and the Raja of Rhinestones, the legendary Bob Mackie. Over the course of our conversation at the offices of Rubenstein Communications in Manhattan, the 80-year-old and I discussed what inspired him to design clothes in the first place, how he came to work with many of the most talented women and gay icons of his lifetime, what inspired some of his greatest creations, from the Gone with the Wind parody dress with a curtain rod for The Carol Burnett Show to Cher's various Oscar outfits how it feels to finally be accepted by the fashion world establishment after decades of being dismissed as merely a costume designer, plus much more. But first, I was joined at the Westin Hotel in Times Square by David Rooney, our chief theater critic and a Tony's voter himself, to help me preview Sunday night's 73rd Tony Awards, which will be hosted by James Corden. David, thanks for joining us. Thank you, Scott. Wonderful to be here. Well, so I think the fun way to approach this is to just go category by category and... Talk about, in your case, what you think should win and just your assessment of the nominees, and we'll come to what's likely to win at the end of each conversation. But there were more than 30 shows this season. 25 of them are represented with at least one nomination, and so there's a lot to talk about on top of the fact that it's an exciting time in town here, and not least because the shrimp cocktail is back at Joe Allen. Yay! <laughs> it's
2: was a big... Special Tony Honorary... <laughs> yes. <laughs> honorary award, award, right. We, we've
1: wanted it for years, and it's back. It's back. Well, let's start, though, with best play. Nominees are Choir Boy, from Terrell Alvin McCraney, the playwright who also was behind the source material for Moonlight, The Ferryman, which is now with a replacement cast, but came over from the U.K., Gary, a sequel to Titus Andronicus, Inc., and What the Constitution Means to Me. And I think the big place to start here, David, is that To Kill a Mockingbird is not among the five nominees. What happened there?
2: You know, it's interesting. It's an anonymous voting process, the Tony nominating committee. And I guess I can see a scenario in which everyone's thinking, well, someone else will vote for that. I'm going to vote for this. I think that Broadway is lagging behind in terms of representation, diversity, inclusiveness, all of that. Off-Broadway is going ahead leaps and bounds with a lot of minority playwrights being produced. A lot of good work along with a lot of mediocre work. But the fact is representation has really seen a shake-up off-Broadway. And Broadway may be feeling the push to catch up. So I think it's significant that we have two queer playwrights, Taryl McCraney Choir Boy, Taylor Mac for Gary a woman, what the Constitution means to me, only one, which is still a little poor, but okay. And then Mm -hmm. two Brits, James Graham with ink and Chets Butterworth with the ferryman. So I think also there is a push in terms of considering the plays to really favor new work, Mm -hmm. original work. And maybe a lot of people think that there's a certain stigma attached to doing an adaptation. I think they're wrong in this case. Mm -hmm. I think that it would have been a very valid inclusion to have to Kill a Mockingbird in there as a sixth nominee.
1: And there, there were also some legal issues surrounding other people in the area being able to do versions of To Kill a Mockingbird and stuff like that that may have backfired
2: a little bit, right? Maybe, yeah. I'm there There is a sense of Scott Rudin as this big producer who kind of runs a lot of Broadway, and he has his admirers and his detractors. I think whatever you say about Scott... You have to admit, he has incredible taste. Mm -hmm. He is very good at choosing projects. Some of them work commercially, some of them don't. To Kill a Mockingbird is a project that really has resonated. It struck a chord with people. I think it's a fantastic adaptation. I think Aaron Sorkin was kind of duped Mm -hmm. out of a nomination in this case.
1: And it is the hot ticket right now, right? It's
2: incredibly difficult to get a seat to. It's doing a million five, a million six a week, which is phenomenal business for a play. That's kind of musical business. It's not really dramatic play business.
1: So these being the five that did make the cut, it seems like the win is likeliest between the ferryman and what the Constitution means to me. Do you argue that
2: another one of these should win? I think, you know, I could see a scenario in which Choir Boy might win, but not so much the others. I was underwhelmed by ink, I have to admit. I found that play a little clever for its own good. I don't think it went very deep. I think there are a lot of interesting stories to tell about Rupert Murdoch, Mm -hmm. and I'm not sure that was one of them. Mm -hmm. I also am a little bit over the Rupert Gould show. The the director of that play is all about the bells and whistles and not so much about the text or performances. So while Bertie Carville is great as Murdoch Mm -hmm. and Johnny Lee Miller is also very good as his editor, Larry Lamb, I think that the play felt kind of empty and long and windy to me. But Gary, I think, is a really ballsy choice to be in there. I don't know how many votes it's going to get, but I kind of like the fact that it's on Broadway and it's represented.
1: All right. Uh, But but
2: what the Constitution means to me is I think it's a really strong play. It's really keyed into this moment in a way that no other play is this season. In terms of Time's Up, Me Too, all of that, the way women are treated in the U.S. Constitution, the way... Women are regarded in terms of legislation in this country. What we're seeing happening in the South now with abortion laws, all of that. It's an incredibly relevant play for right now. So, So the should win for David Rooney is? The should win for me is The Ferryman because I'm just a tireless lover of big, populous, bold theater. I think there's a great thriller element to it, I think there's a great family drama. It's just a big, sprawling, rich tapestry of life, and I think that the way Sam Mendes has directed the piece, it just pulsates with all of this energy, in a similar way to Jez Butterworth's play Jerusalem from a few years back. I do think he's a great playwright in terms of these big themes, big, muscular pieces of theatre that we don't get so often anymore because the basic economics of theatre are so tight that everyone wants to do a three-character, single-set play. Right. Well,
1: I do think that that seems to be the way that the tide is breaking, that I think for the will win I will say right now the ferryman as well. Although I wonder if it makes any difference that there's the original cast that everybody first saw, including the Tony voters is not there for the home stretch here i, I assume they'll be here for the ceremony itself because a number of them are nominated but i don't think we ever quite got to the bottom of why that is if it was a visa issue or what but that the original company which started overseas and brought it here is not here for the home stretch.
2: yeah i think the fact that a lot of them had done it at the royal court then they had done it in the west end transfer so they'd been doing it for a long time yeah then they did six or eight months or whatever it was on broadway so I think contracts were up, equity deals were probably ended at that point. Who knows? Yeah. Uh, you know They may have had other projects in the works. Let's, but the fact is, they didn't just replace them with third-tier no, shabby no, Broadway. No. It's, it's a top-tier replacement cast. Absolutely. So I think people who are seeing the play now are not having a lesser experience right. with it. Let's go to Best Musical, which to me is the toughest category. Just
1: to predict, you've got Ain't Too Proud, sort of a jersey boys-esque thing with the temptations beetlejuice Hades Town, which is the show with the most nominations of any show 14 the prom and then tootsie which is doing big business and also getting raved so purely from a should win point of view what's your take on that category
2: oh absolutely hadestown all the way i think it's a really original piece with a beautiful score i think it's incredibly well sung The only thing that maybe will count against it in some ways, I think, is that it's a weird show in that the leads are far less compelling than the supporting characters. Mm -hmm. The romantic leads, are there: Reeve Carney and Eva Nobletzada, are just much less interesting as characters than Hades and Persephone, played by Patrick Page and Amber Gray, and by Hermes, played by the wonderful Andre de Shields. Yes. So... In that sense, it's an oddball, but it's beautifully staged. I think Rachel Chavkin was gypped out of the Tony for Best Director a couple of years back for Natasha Pierre and the Great My Comet favorite, of 1812. favorite, favorite show. Beautifully yeah. directed yeah. show, incredibly innovative and full of imagination and just wonderful, inextricable work with the design people as well, with the lighting, with the costumes, with the set design. And I think she's done the same thing here. It's a beautifully directed piece that has really benefited from multiple productions prior to Broadway in which it's evolved every step of the way. I personally love the Orpheus and Eurydice myth. I think it's one of the most beautiful. And I found it very moving. I found the music incredibly memorable. And I think Ingrid Michelson, should she decide to continue with musical theater, I'm really interested to see what she does because I do think there's a very original voice here. And you know, a show with a book, score and lyrics by a woman that doesn't happen so often. I think Hadestown really deserves it.
1: Well, and it would be consistent with the way things have gone the last few years, whether it's Fun Home or Dear Evan Hansen or Hamilton, where something has come up through Off-Broadway, really found support within the community, and then, you know, and an original work, as opposed to—it seems like there's been a reaction against something like—now, look, Tootsie itself is, in a way, a totally new work, because what we think of as Tootsie was certainly not a musical. They've done a beautiful— job with that, and I think Santino Fontana, who will will come to that category, is like a slam dunk. Absolutely. So there's somewhere where that will be recognized for sure. The Prom, I think maybe, you know, it's amazing what an aggressive push they've made for that, and also that... The Prom does have a shot at yeah. being,
2: you know, the little show that could. Yes. It's the underdog at the box office. Tootsie is doing very well. Town is selling out. Ain't Too Proud is doing phenomenal business, which is, again, I think... We can be critical about the proliferation of the jukebox musical, Mm -hmm. the proliferation of the movie-to-musical adaptation. But I think that Ain't Too Proud and Tootsie are superior examples of both. They're both very deserving nominees. And The Prom is a totally original, completely charming, captivating show. It's funny. Mm -hmm. It's fresh. It's queer positive. I think that, you know, these are all pretty legitimate contenders. Beetlejuice... Yeah, the, it's, I think is the weak link here.
1: But you're so you're a Tony voter. Do you look at this and say, I want to use my vote to help a show that needs help, as opposed to rubber stamping a show that's already going over great? Or do you just totally remove any of that? And it's just what do I truly think is the best? Because if you're looking to help a show, perhaps you do vote for the prom. Or if you're looking to endorse the idea of original works coming up through, you know, you sort of through the system, then Town. I'm just curious personally how you approach that.
2: I guess I do think about what show is going to benefit the most from a Tony. And I think something like Tootsie is going to have commercial longevity regardless. It's a hugely entertaining show. And as long as Santino Fontana stays in it, it really delivers on all levels. I think the book is exceptional for Tootsie. It's very, very funny. Mm -hmm. What's great about it is that the jokes we know from the movie are not the jokes that really have you screaming with laughter Mm -hmm. during the show. Mm -hmm. It's the new stuff. It's very fresh. And I think that... the potentially problematic aspect of a guy passing himself off as a woman to take a woman's job yeah, this has means. been addressed head on, yeah. and I think quite smartly. But what they've done with the show that I think is really exceptional is flesh out all the supporting characters in wonderful ways. So they all have their distinct identity, which is very different from the identity of their predecessors in the movie. Right. You know, It's a great show, but does it need the Tony? Maybe not. I tend to just really... To answer your question mm-hmm. in a long winded way, mm-hmm. I tend to really go with what I just my gut, what I think is the best show of them all.
1: Well, so in this case, we agree the should win and the will win in a very tight race, but. I think we're coming in with hadestown on both counts
2: that could be a spoiler category you know no for sure, a, for sure for sure like a the prom even ain't too to the proud
1: head. you know they they all have their fans absolutely i just think if we have the gun to the head and have to make a call right now it's the easiest to justify but it's, it could go in a number of ways best revival of a play the third of the big four show awards you've got three shows that are closed the boys in the band Torch Song, and the Waverly Gallery, and then two others that are still running, We Saw All My Sons Together, and then there's also Burn This. A lot of Hollywood talent between these categories. All My Sons has Annette Benning, Boys in the Band had a, a whole host of folks, Burn This, Carrie Russell, and Adam Driver, and then Waverly Gallery, Elaine May, Lucas Hedges, on and on, Joan Allen, who was not nominated individually, same with Hedges. In terms of revival of a play... Where do you fall on that?
2: I think it's a tight race. I really enjoyed the All My Sons revival. I think it's very solid. It doesn't reinvent the wheel, but it's a really sharp production, beautifully acted. And Burn This, I think, Driver is phenomenal. It's one of those performances that you really remember. Everything about it is so physical, so dynamic. Uh, It's kind of a Brando-esque performance. Torch Song, I had kind of lukewarm feelings about when it was off-Broadway, but I think by the time it moved to Broadway, Michael Urie, who was playing the Harvey Firestein character, had sort of stepped out from that shadow and made the role his own in ways that I thought were quite beautiful. And Mercedes Rule was great. I think it was a terrific revival. So this is a strong category, but I do think it's going to come down to a clash between Boys in the Band mm-hmm. and the Waverly Gallery, both of which are terrific productions. I love Kenny Lonergan's plays. Mm -hmm. I don't think the Waverly Gallery is his strongest. Mm -hmm. It's maybe his most personal. Mm -hmm. But I also find we've seen this kind of territory so much in indie movies particularly. There are always 18 versions of this play at every Sundance. And I thought it had its limitations. What it did have that I think was incredible was Elaine May's performance. And I think it's also quite beautifully directed by Lila Neugebauer. For me, Joan Allen's omission from the featured actress category is one of the big crimes of these Tony nominations. But if I had to go for a production for Best Revival, my pick would be Boys in the Band. I think that that But this is that you should win. Absolutely should win. I mean, first of all, politically, it's inconceivable that 10 years ago we could have had this play, which has been equally vilified and celebrated by LGBTQ audiences over the decades— some people think it's great. Some people think it perpetuates the ugliest kind of stereotypes. But I think what Joe Mantello did in directing this beautifully cast production was to take a play that is potentially problematic and show us via compassion for the characters, for the situation they're in, show us the context, the social context of what created these men and their hang-ups and their neuroses, what made them bitter and aggressive with one another that you know there's as much hate as love as much self-loathing as celebration in it and i think all of that is what made that production very complex and entertaining and rewarding i think that
1: well yeah it does seem between those two for the will win as well although it's unusual certainly not unheard of at all but unusual that you would have this between a bunch of shows that have closed but i think there's of the two that are still running i have a hard time seeing all my sons or burn this, beating those. And I guess it's just a question of, you know, Rudin has mounted a very aggressive campaign for Waverly Gallery, but I think that everyone recognizes Elaine May is going to be honored in her category, so I'm inclined to... And deservedly so. And deservedly so, so I would be inclined to think they would go with Boys in the Band here as well. Yeah,
2: I mean, you mentioned Scott Rudin, aggressive campaign for the Waverly Gallery. I don't think the Boys in the Band has been any less aggressive. No, They're reminding us all very consistently that... You know, even though the play happened last summer yeah. and it's long gone, that it was very well loved in the community. It had a great response. It commercially was very successful. I think my choice for should win would be Boys in the Band, but I find it very hard to say which one will. Well, yeah. I think it's really going to be down to the wire for Boys in the Band and the Waverly Gallery, yes. both of which would be deserving. Absolutely.
1: Winners. Let's go to Revival of a Musical, where we have an unusual situation. Just two nominees. It was a very thin year for musical revivals. And the two that we have are Kiss Me Kate with Kelly O'Hara, who's also nominated. We'll come to her later. And then Oklahoma, but Not Your Grandmother's Oklahoma. This one is in the round at Circle in the Square and done very unconventionally with pots and pans right in front of the audience.
2: Anyway, very- Cornbread, chili.
1: Yeah, chili. Yeah, (laughs) exactly. uh, During intermission, which even Anna Wintour was lining up for, received some publicity. Anyway, between these two- it does seem to have really broken for Oklahoma, both in terms of what people think should and will win. So I don't know how much we need to get into that. If you have anything you'd want to add about that.
2: I found Kiss Me Kate, I have to say, slightly pedestrian. Mm -hmm. I thought that there were some great moments. Kelly O'Hara singing Cole Porter's song, So In Love, is really just one of the beautiful vocal performances of the year. She can do anything. I'm not sure that this kind of comedy is really her forte. And for me, it didn't help that the show was so recently revived with Brian Stokes Mitchell and the wonderful Marin Mazzi, who died last yes. year and who's being honored at the Tonys. Yes. Um, that was a pretty standout production. This, to me, felt like it had some great moments. The, the two Darn Hot Dance Ensemble number is pretty fantastic. Yes. What um, Carlisle. But, you know, for every electrifying moment, there were some kind of sluggish moments. And I'm not entirely convinced that Will Chase is a great romantic lead. I think he's fine. He gets the job done, but he's not particularly inspiring. That show, I kind of forgot it the minute it was over. Whereas Oklahoma, we, I know we disagree on this. You were not such a fan. For me, getting Anna Wintour to eat carbs is, <laughs> is the least of its achievements. I think it's a pretty phenomenal yeah, reinvention yeah. Of, a, of an old chestnut that can be kind of corny and old school. But we forget that Oklahoma was a revolutionary show in its day. It followed showboat in showing Americans that musical theater can be narratively complex and can have dramatic heft to it. It's not just fluff. And I think what Daniel Fish has done is take the show back to its roots as a play to really explore the dark heart of America. And this sense of men coming in and taking ownership of the land, ownership of women, marginal figures being pushed aside and dealt with without any kind of justice. I found it really heartbreaking, and it just had me gripped the entire time. I also think what they've done with the orchestrations is just genius. I think taking it back to this bluegrassy kind of sound with instruments that are true to the period, these beautiful kind of like early Katie Lang country orchestrations on songs that we know so well— I think it's just superb. I absolutely adored that. No, production. you make
1: a lot of good points. I still am not clear what the thing was when you come back from intermission and you've got a interpretive dance from somebody. But whatever. I mean, it was. Uh, it's strong feelings on both directions. I've seen with that. What I'm gonna suggest we do for the remaining categories, because I want to make sure we touch on all of them, is I'll say the nominees and. Maybe let's just a sentence or two on the should wins and a sentence or two on the will wins, and we'll just zoom right through them. So let's start with Best Performance by a Leading Actor in a Play, Patty Considine for The Ferryman, Bryan Cranston for Network, Jeff Daniels for To Kill a Mockingbird, Adam Driver for Burn This, and Jeremy Pope, a newcomer who's nominated twice this year, in this case and in this category, for Choir Boy. We should just quickly note Cranston is a past winner just a few years ago for All the Way, Daniels has never won before. Take it away.
2: They're all really strong contenders. Any one of them could be a very dignified winner. I think Jeremy Pope, it's great that he is duly represented here and for Ain't Too Proud, he's doing fantastic work. And just having done those shows back to back, it's really a phenomenal debut Broadway season for him. I think his time will come if he continues with stage work and doesn't get channeled away into film and TV projects. Paddy Considine is so fantastic again a total novice to the stage this was his first stage role i think that his performance in the ferryman was really quite something cranston is great but for me he's the only thing that i love about network i thought that you know i love that movie but i think that the Paddy chayefsky screenplay is very much linked to its time a lot of the things he was so prescient about foreseeing have come to pass and now they kind of just you know, they yield a shrug and that's about it. Cranston is pretty electrifying, but whenever he's not on the centre of the stage, I felt the place slump a little bit and all of the bells and whistles of all the multimedia stuff just became like a distraction. Adam Driver, we we talked about, he's an animal on stage. He's just fantastic. And I think that the breakaway from stage work into television and film has fed his craft in a really interesting way. I think what he's doing in this play is so far above and beyond the things he did early in his day straight out of Juilliard as an actor. I think he's phenomenal. But, you know, I would go with Jeff Daniels here. I think he's a very deserving winner. It's very hard to take a character like Atticus Finch, who all of us know from the book, all of us know from the movie, from Gregory Peck's performance, and to Give that character a moral shading that he doesn't have in the movie. His arc is, I think, much more complex. And that, I think, is part of the strength of Aaron Sorkin's quite beautiful adaptation, is taking us with Atticus as he makes up his mind and is influenced by the forces around him. And his mind is opened up to the forces of racism he is trying to combat in his very earnest way.
1: Well, I think for the Will Win, it does seem to be between Cranston and Daniels, these two people who are certainly well-known on the West Coast as well and have come here and done months and months of great work. I think that there is a certain impulse of people to, you know, give somebody else a first win before they give a second to Cranston. But my sort of gut feeling is that people are just so blown away by what Cranston has done in this and that it's less of an ensemble piece than To Kill a Mockingbird where my sense is that Cranston will get his second
2: but you might be right it's an incredible virtuoso performance i mean it's just where he gets all that energy and all that kind of internal angst that comes up it's really an exhausting performance to watch in a good way but you know i don't think you can underestimate the importance of a really strong linchpin in holding together a big ensemble and daniels does that i think quite beautifully with a minimum of showiness oh and a great great theater actor i mean either one of them very worthy winners absolutely
1: performance by a leading actress in a play Annette Benning, All My Sons, Lord Donnelly, The Ferryman, Elaine May, Waverly Gallery, Janet McTeer, Bernhardt, Hamlet, Laurie Metcalf, Hillary, and Clinton, having won in each of the last two years, and then Heidi Shrek, who also wrote What the Constitution Means to Me. This seems to be one we can handle pretty quickly because for her first time on Broadway in about 50 years. More than 50 years. More than 50 years. Elaine May for the Waverly Gallery seems like a slam
2: dunk. Yeah, I mean, she's been around as a writer occasionally, but not as a performer since back in the days with when she was a an improv duo with Mike Nichols. She is a beloved figure in the theater community, in the film community. She has always been something of a maverick. And I think what she does in this play, the lines separating performer from character just disappear completely. And she had me believing from the first scene that she is this woman who is formidable in her day, once this incredible social creature, part of the Greenwich Village gallery scene. And there's a sadness that comes with that, a melancholy aspect that clings to that performance as her mind starts deteriorating faster than her body. And I really think that she does something quite spectacular here. Yeah, But, you know, there are a lot of other good performances. I think Annette Bening is terrific. Again, absent from Broadway for more than 30 years. Wow. Larry Metcalf. this play didn't stick with me. She's always wonderful to watch, but it wasn't yep. great. Janet McTeer, the same, but I think yep. that is a truly terrible play. And uh, <laughs> Laura Donnelly is pretty great, playing a character somewhat inspired by her family's experiences. And Heidi Schreck is sort of doing a version of herself, which yep. requires some skill, but you know, there's nothing here quite at the level of Elaine May.
1: Best performance by a leading actor in a musical. Brooks Eshmanskas for The Prom, Derek Baskin for Ain't Too Proud. Alex Brightman for Beetlejuice, nominated just a couple of years ago for a, another performance in the same Winter Garden Theater School of Rock. Damon Duano for Oklahoma and Santino Fontana Tootsie. It's another one I think we can pretty quickly say the will and should would be Santino Fontana.
2: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I liked all of these performances. I would argue maybe that Brooks Ashmanskas should be in the featured category, not the lead, mm-hmm. but he is. always hilarious hilarious. he's the funniest man on a new york stage i I agree
1: i get a huge kick at him but But, santino fontana
2: is just great i mean it's quite an achievement i think to take a role that is so identified iconically with dustin hoffman and to make it new and that's part of i think the writers and the directors everybody involved has contributed to this but ultimately it's santino who's carrying every scene and he makes you care about the character I think he's wonderful.
1: Yeah. I think the moment when he sings I Won't Let You Down and you realize he can do this is one of the great
2: moments of the season. So that And was, you, just, you start to buy him as a woman. Absolutely. And I think that's the essential part. If you don't buy him as a woman in that first scene, you're basically not on yeah. board with the show. Die but die he sells it. He yep. sells it very cleverly. And it's not a caricature. It's a real characterization.
1: Best Performance by a Leading Actress in a Musical, Stephanie J. Block, The Share Show. She plays the most mature version of three shares in that show. The other two are not nominated, which seems a little unfair, but she is the star. Caitlin Kinoonan for The Prom. Beth Level, also for The Prom, a past winner. Eva Novozada for Hades Town, just a few years after being nominated for Miss Saigon. And Kelly O'Hara, seventh nomination. She won three or four years ago for The King and I. And so... It seems like this in most people's calculations the should and the will is between stephanie j block and beth level where do you fall on that
2: well i find beth level you know a perfect match for brooks ashman's because just hilarious everything she does she kind of plays variations on the same character but she does it so well she is the ultimate kind of egomaniacal stage diva and she's just fabulous at it i laughed my butt off in the prom i found it a very very funny show but, you know, SJB all the way. I think it's it's Stephanie J. Block. She really brings class and a wink wink kind of irony without pushing it too hard to the Cher right. show. She knows exactly the show she's in and she I think what she does for me that's fundamental in this show is she gets Cher's irony. There's yeah. always a certain self awareness and an irony to Cher right. that I think saves this show from being a big just a big trashy glitzy Vegas kind of spectacle. Right. And it is that to some degree, but it's also incredible. It's a fun. lot of fun. And yeah. she Stephanie J. Block just owns it. Every moment she's on stage she's such authority. Actress and
1: somebody in the community who and again, Beth Level has one before and she's now having to compete for votes with a co-star, so I think that Stephanie J. Block ends up winning there. Stephanie the J. World. Block is
2: also a real trooper. Broadway yeah. loves people who keep coming back and performing. She's you know she started off as I think a replacement Elphaba in Wicked, and mm-hmm. you know she's done a, a number of other shows. She was fantastic in Falsettos, yeah, a couple of years ago, and oh, she could great. easily have been a winner for that. But I think this is her moment.
1: All right, performance by a featured actor in a play: Bertie Carvel for Inc. Robin Jesus for The Boys in the Band. Gideon Glick for To Kill a Mockingbird, Brandon Uranowitz for Burn This, and Benjamin Walker for All My Sons. This one's tight. Go to Beth for somebody, David.
2: Well, as you say, it's as tight as Benjamin Walker's abs, (laughs) uh, which we saw. (laughs) Thank you for that. You know, I think that it's a really interesting character. For me, the standout performance by a featured actor in a play was not even nominated. It was Zachary Quinto in Boys in the Band. Mm -hmm. I think it takes real courage to play a character so abrasive, to make no concessions to soften him. I mean, there were moments in that where he was beyond sinister. And I think that he was incredibly compelling to watch. In the same way he was passed over for his work in Glass Menagerie a few years ago, I think it's pretty unjust that he was passed over for this one, too. I think Robin de Jesus is terrific. Gideon Glick, I think, is wonderful in To Kill a Mockingbird. It's a tough category, not just because of his abs, but I think I would go with Benjamin (laughs) Walker. He was great. Uh, I think he's really an underrated actor, and he brings a pathos to that character that I wasn't always aware of in past productions of All My Sons. And again, it's a very good ensemble. Jack O'Brien is very good with a large ensemble, and I think he keeps them unified. Tracy Letts does great work. Annette Benning does superb work. But Benjamin Walker, you know, manages to stand out in that crowd. That, for me, is worth something. This category, probably more than any other, is a place where we might see a, a dark horse, an absolute surprise. I just
1: can't imagine. I mean, Gideon Glick was great and *Significant Other*. I don't feel he had that much to do in he, *To Kill a
2: Mockingbird*. You see, I really liked him in *To Kill a Mockingbird*. Yeah. I loved the way he was giving a subtle kind of wink of the link to Truman Capote. We get this sense that this is a young boy who is going to grow into a gay man. I think all of that is very understated and and just woven into the performance in quite subtle ways. I also think Brandon Aranowitz is terrific. I don't ever think I've seen him give an uninteresting performance. Mm -hmm. I think he's great in Burn This. For me, Burn This, the weakness is I don't think the play holds up particularly well.
1: It's a tight one, but I'm going to go in the end here with Bertie Carvel for Inc. All right, featured actress in a play... Fianula Flanagan for the ferryman, Celia Keenan-Bolger for Kilmagingburg, Christine Nielsen and Julie White both for Gary, a sequel to Titus Andronicus, and Ruth Wilson for King Lear—the one actress nominated there. There is not a nomination this year, sort of somewhat surprisingly, for Glenda Jackson, who won last year. I think that this seems to really be most people would agree for the shut and the well celia keenan bulger
2: yeah absolutely she again someone with a great history on broadway in the last 10 15 years she has done very consistent work over a number of productions both plays and musicals starting with the lovely 25th annual putnam county spelling bee and i think what she does playing scout Finch is really interesting. It's hard for an adult to play a kid yeah, like without it being 41, cloying. Yeah, she's
1: like 41, 42, 43 years old, and she's playing an 8-year-old perfectly. never believable.
2: you never question no, the no, veracity no, no. of the performance. And I love Fiona Flanagan's performance in The Ferryman as well. Yeah, She may get some traction. The others, you know, I think are very worthy nominations, but I do think it's Celia Keenan-Boulders.
1: Yeah. Best performance by a featured actor in a musical, Andre de DeShields, Hadestown, Andy Gratolution for Tootsie. Good job on pronunciation. (laughs) Patrick Page for Hadestown. Jeremy Pope for Ain't Too Proud. And Ephraim Sykes for Ain't Too Proud. I think the gut reaction when you see something like this where you've got two pairs of people from the same shows, two from Eighties Town, two from Ain't Too Proud, is that you sort of think the other guy has the advantage, except that in this case, Andre DeShields is such a beloved veteran, and then you have these two relative newcomers from Ain't Too Proud. I don't know how you pick between the two Ain't Too Proud guys who are both excellent as members of The Temptations. And I think, Andy, resolution is— fine and tootsie very good but it doesn't feel like enough there to to merit a win so the two guys from hadestown are both excellent patrick page with that booming voice as hades and then andre deshields as basically the MC of the production yeah sort he's of. the
2: storyteller yes he guides us through he's the messenger i feel like it's got to be him right uh you know it's hard to imagine a scenario in which he doesn't win as you say he's an absolutely beloved veteran of the industry with a history of 50 or so years in the business. He's in his 70s now. He hasn't been on Broadway in 10 years. He's never won a Tony. You know, he is a phenomenal force in not just African-American theater, but in theater in general. Mm. And I think it's a wonderful performance. It's flamboyant and showy, but it's also, it draws you in. There's a kind of conspiratorial aspect to it to the way he draws you in and the way he's sort of invested in the story but also detached from it that requires a real balancing act and i think he's pretty wonderful but if there's a surprise here i would think it's going to come from one of the ain't too proud guys and i love jeremy pope i think doing that as we said back-to-back performances in choir boy and ain't too proud is, is really something and speaks highly of his energy and commitment at this young age but I was blown away by Ephraim Sykes. I think the way he moves, the way he sings on stage, the pathos he invested in this very troubled, conflicted character, mm-hmm. I thought was great. His performance as David Ruffin, if I had to pick a dark horse, I would pick Ephraim yeah. Sykes.
1: All right. Performance by a featured actress in musical, Lily Cooper for Tootsie in the Jessica Lang part, Amber Gray- in Hadestown, Sarah Stiles and Tootsie in the Terry Gar part, Ali Stroker in Oklahoma as Ado Annie, and Mary Testa as Aunt Eller, also in Oklahoma. I thought Amber Gray was great in both the Gray Comet and now again back with Rachel Chavkin in Hadestown, but I would be surprised based on the way things have broken so far if Ali Stroker is not the winner, and that would be historic in the sense that the first disabled actress in a wheelchair to win a Tony that would be quite a moment and I think that's where we're headed
2: yeah I got to agree I don't think I had a more enjoyable time on Broadway at any point in the season than watching Ali Stroker absolutely jubilant while singing I'm just a girl who can't say no the idea of this woman in a wheelchair who is just with this sexuality exploding out of her it was almost revolutionary and it was such a high point in that show which is often very melancholy very downbeat But, you know, this incredible celebratory song that she sings about her own sexuality, I think, is just great. And the performance is just so full of joy, so full of intelligence. Edo Annie can easily just be a ditzy... Slut. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, a ditzy slut. But, you know, I think here she is this this woman who is absolutely self-possessed and in charge of her own sexuality in charge of her own choices i really enjoyed that performance but again amber gray is phenomenal as yeah. persephone what a voice what a voice what a you know and i think that she has a special connection to the director rachel chavkin that has worked in great comet yeah. and in this show you know you can't take your eyes off her when she's on stage yeah. and she in a sense, is the female complement to Andre De Shields in yeah. that she has a certain MC quality yeah. in her performance as well. When she takes the mic and sings the first song after intermission and introduces the band as if it's a cabaret right. show, I think that's a great moment yeah. and it's sort of adventurous I'd thing I'd be thrilled for
1: her if, if she won because she really is terrific. But I Either one of those yeah. two
2: would be very, very worthy winners, but I do think Ali Stroker is going to take it.
1: All right, we will see. All the results will start coming in on Sunday night at 8 p.m. Eastern. James Corden hosting the 73rd Tony Awards. David Rooney, thank you for doing this. Thank you, Scott. Always a pleasure. And now for my interview with Bob Mackey. Bob, thank you so much for doing this. It's an honor to have you on the podcast. Thank you. My pleasure. We always begin with just a few basics. Where were you born and raised, and what did your folks do for a living?
0: Well, I was born in California, Los Angeles area, Monterey Park, My mother didn't really do much of anything. She didn't like the idea of ever having to work. She worked for a while, and the most she knew how to do was file. (laughs) And she hated it. And um, somehow she managed, you know, to live off of... She had some stocks that her parents gave her Mm -hmm. because they just thought she was hopeless, and she was about things like that. And uh, she lived off that for her whole life, really. And and
1: was your dad in the picture?
0: Not much. No, not much. They pretty much separated when couple months after I was born, yeah, and he went off to the war, the big war, and there I was. I didn't even see him until I was around six or seven. Really? I read that there was a trick grandmother in the picture. Is that true? Well, there was a grandmother, yeah. My father's mother, actually... And so that was perfect for my mother because then she didn't have to really take care of me, you know. She'd take me to amusement parks and movies and things, which is fine. She was sort of like my auntie Mame, but not really much of a mother. <laughs> and I, I know that sounds terrible, but you know. And every now and then, if I'd say no to her, she's but Bobby, I
1: am your mother. <laughs> and then
0: you go, mm, yeah.
1: <laughs> so the escape—it sounds like you know—not the ideal childhood. So the escape, though, was the movies. I think it was like my college, really, just going and watching
0: and watching and watching and and not realizing what I was picking up on. And then by the time I was about 12, 10, 12, I realized I was learning from the movies. Which ones sort of made the biggest impression on you? Well, I mean, the flashiest ones, of course, the MGM musicals, 20th Century Fox musicals, the early on it was always Carmen Miranda or Betty Grable or those 40s ladies because they were the most colorful and it was Technicolor and they didn't look anything like my mother and my half sister <laughs> Patsy so i just liked them you know yeah. i liked them and then i would come home and i'd draw little pictures i wouldn't draw exactly what i'd seen because i you know but i would do my versions and that went on for years and years
1: and That's- was it clear that what you were drawing what you were focusing on were the clothes or it was just the whole ex- experience of that the point? whole thing yeah. but
0: it was the clothes too you know because you draw a body you put clothes on it and they were always hotzi tatsi clothes they had <laughs> nothing to do with you know, and then I would put, I, I would draw all these pictures, and then I'd say, well, that could be for my sister Patsy, and this could be for my grandmother, right. and this is my aunt B, and I would put names on them, and they would be, you know, they all looked like hookers, <laughs> <laughs> because they were, you know, what was I, you know, I was six or seven, right. Well, that's, and and they'd all get a big laugh out of it. And, look at Grandma, look <laughs> she's <you know. laughs>
1: looking good. Yeah. yeah. So you eventually dabbled at a few different colleges but left before graduating. And I wanted to ask, what had you studied and what prompted you to leave?
0: Well, I only left one, really. I went to a like a city college because I was, you know, I couldn't really get into college because my math was so terrible mm-hmm. and it never did get much better. <laughs> and so I had to go there to try to make that up because I couldn't get anywhere if I didn't have all that and go to accredited school and blah, blah, blah. And of course, I went to the school. I got a scholarship. And then I was there for a couple of years. I won all the all the awards before my last year. So I just quit. Did uh, I read, though,
1: a, <clears throat> while you were there, that did Jane Mansfield wear one of your dresses? Well, she
0: did, yeah.
1: Was um, she a student there? No, <laughs> no, 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 She was picked... It was an art school.
0: Yeah. It was an art school that had a costume design department. And the art school had an art student's ball every spring. And Jane Mansfield and her husband, Mickey Hargitay, yeah, yeah. the muscle man, you know... They came and they were gonna be the king and the queen of the art students ball, which is pretty fun. Yeah. You know? And we had a, like a little contest and I sort of, I didn't turn in one. I turned in about 10 of outfits, <laughs> all different versions and stuff. I was ready to go already. Yeah, I, yeah, They were pretty good actually. When I see them now, I go, mm, you know, I, you could make money doing that. Yeah. That's, so it was good. Anyway, they took pictures of me holding up fabric and doing thing and she came in a suit cause it was a school before you know it. She somehow had her suit jacket off and she held some fabric here and then she undid her bra and flipped that behind her so she could push everything up. It was hysterical. And of course, all the art students who see naked women all the time because they're doing figure classes and stuff, but they were all hooting and hollering and up in the second story looking down as you're we were- saying she was topless. She was topless, but she wasn't bare topless, but she (laughs) might as well. Yeah, right, right. She had fabric and she was pushing her boobies up. And, (laughs) you know, it was funny and it was really, we had a good time. And then we had to go fit her. Right. And she had this house in Beverly Hills, right on Sunset Boulevard, that had a heart-shaped pool. Special house, got a lot of publicity. Right. You know, Mickey built this whole heart-shaped pool and the whole house, you know, one room was turquoise with a picture of Jane in a turquoise dress, big painting on the wall, and the next room, was pink, and the next room was, you know, and she had a. They they were taking a shower before the fitting. We were going to fit both of them because they were going to, right. you know, she was going to be a Greek goddess, and he was a. Uh, well, he didn't have much. This on. is
1: once your design had already been chosen oh, as yes, the winner. Oh yeah, yeah, no, yeah, it was the yeah. winner. Yeah,
0: I mean, I didn't have any competition at that school <laughs> right at that time because everybody wanted to be a sportswear designer. Oh uh, okay. And uh, you know, I said, I said, costume design. That's what I'm here for.
1: Well, let's stop there though, because at what point did you decide? this was what you were going to pursue, and how did your... Oh, that was when I was 10 years old, I decided that. So, to go Um, off to this college, which I guess today is now California Institute of the Arts. It is. It is. It had a big Disney backing at
0: the time. Yeah. And a lot of the artists, the early artists at Disney had gone to school there, but then they took over when they just changed the whole school. So...
1: I guess, had you not gotten the scholarship, how would your mom know. and grandmother have felt about oh, I,
0: I don't know. I don't think either one of them cared. What, what you did, did. Yeah. I mean, I was such a weird child that they just figured, well, you better just let him do what he does because <laughs> he's doing all right. Yeah, yeah, You know, and I got a scholarship, so that was good.
1: Was the scholarship on the basis of And I didn't have your... any money, so that was good. That to helps, yeah, the scholarship. Yeah. Do you think the scholarship was on the basis of your sketching? Because you were obviously a really great drawer from yeah. early on.
0: I was two years in this junior college that had a really good art department, uh-huh. and I was already pretty good. I was making money doing illustrations and stuff around, and the people at the school thought, oh, boy, here we go. He's an illustrator. He could be you know, advertising art, il- mm-hmm. commercial art, and then I told him, oh, no, I want to come here to be a costume designer. So the art part was pretty strong to start with.
1: It is interesting, though, because they're in some ways totally different skill sets to be able to draw that beautifully and to make costume designs, and you do both well, well, so well. Well, because I
0: drew all the time. I, yeah. You know, I live with my grandparents, and there weren't any kids around. There were no kids in the neighborhood mm-hmm. to speak of. You know, I saw kids at school, right. but I was that weird child that didn't like sports. And yeah, yeah, yeah. Whatever. Anyway.
1: Well, so the reason you ended up leaving
0: college early
1: was because—
0: I went back in the fall for the next year, and they were saying, and this year we get to do the Capizio shoe competition, and we do this over here and this over there. And I'd won them all the year before, (laughs) and I said it's time for me to get out of here. I'll just quit. I'll get my portfolio together. And it was a good portfolio. Mm -hmm. And I had two portfolios, had one for commercial art. And I had another one that I put together for getting jobs in the studios as a sketch artist for designers. A lot of them didn't draw or they didn't want to, Mm -hmm. you know, or they did huge films and they had to have help to do all the people and the crowd scenes and all that stuff. Anyway... I did about, I don't know, half a dozen to a dozen things that were, I thought, very movie-oriented. And Mm -hmm. I had a friend who was a teacher in the school. I looked at his stuff, and I went, oh, okay, I can do that. And I did this one drawing. I did a whole lot of stuff, period stuff and everything. I did one drawing, a man in a tuxedo next to a blonde, glamorous woman in a blue beaded dress. And for the next couple of years, that one
1: sketch kind of cinched every job I got. Wow. And so so the jobs that you were getting, though, in that period were for movies or for other? For for movies, yeah. The first job I
0: got booked for, not the first one I did, actually, was drawing Marilyn Monroe for her last film that never got finished. Something's got to give, yeah. And that was quite interesting, you know,
1: and terrifying. So So you were drawing. For your first job. Oh, I can only imagine. So I just want to kind of, because the chronology in my mind is a little muddled, because what came first, working with paramount in some capacity as this? This was at 20th Century Fox. I got the job, but
0: it wasn't going to start until March something, 12th. It's funny how you remember those dates when it's so important. (laughs) And in the meantime, I got another job that I got a call. Can you come in and work for a couple of weeks for this guy who's doing a film in Europe? And he's designing the clothes and making them here for Charles Boyer, Glenn Ford, and Pope Lang. And I said, "Yeah, sure," but you're going to only draw the men, and I'm going, "Oh boy!" You know, because you preferred to draw well, the women. Well, no, I was more used to drawing women. Okay. I, I thought, "Well, I can do it." I mean, I had been to art school. I mean, yeah. I could really do it, but it's tricky if you don't do it all the time. You know, all of a sudden, your yeah. men look a little Nelly, <laughs> and so you have to <laughs> be real careful. Right. i got to look like really butch. Yeah. There's Glenn <laughs> Ford in <and> his <laughs> jean jacket and his jeans and different kinds of T-shirts and whatever, and okay. Charles Boyer in his pinstripe suit looking right. like a European you know, executive or whatever he was. But I did the job, and we rented space at Paramount in Edith Head's, little suite of rooms and offices. We meaning
1: that production.
0: That production. Yeah. 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 And I just came to work and there I am in Paramount, you know, in Edith Head's area. And I'm going, sheesh, here we are. And the first day I'm sitting there at the drawing board trying to draw and in runs Judy Garland. I said, where's the women's room? <laughs> <laughs> the ladies room. And I said, down the hall. And, and I went, oh, wow, Judy Garland. Yeah. You know, that was fun. Yeah. And it was like that. It was just full of people all the time. Did I mean, you interact with Edith Head? Yeah, Edith, you know, she came in to see, you know, what this kid was doing. And she'd come in every day and check on me and see what I was doing. And before I know it, a couple weeks later, well, he actually, I was doing the men's clothes. And then Frank Thompson, the designer, said to me, he says, I haven't got time to do Hope Lang's clothes, to draw those. I'll tell you what to do and you do them for me. You can work an extra week or two. And so she was watching me do all this stuff.
1: Because she didn't usually draw the men's clothes, she, or wasn't you know it was Was women's. that to you like having got over your shoulder? I mean, she was the no, greatest I, of the no, movie costumes. No, she wasn't costumes. the greatest. So, you, I already
0: knew. I I didn't think she was the best, but she was one of the smartest. Okay, she could do a really good looking movie, and she everybody was happy. They all got what they right, wanted, right. and she pleased everybody if we designed something red for somebody to wear, they came and said, oh, I hate red. Who said red? (laughs) You know, it was one of those. And the next thing you know, I'd be drawing it a different color, you know.
1: Well, so, okay, so who was, in your
0: mind, the greatest? I didn't work with the greatest, I don't think. I worked for Jean-Louis, who was really a wonderful, glamorous designer. He did, you know, Rita Hayworth and Gilda and all those movies at Columbia. And he did Dietrich's performance, clothes, all those see-through dresses Mm -hmm. and stuff. A little of that rubbed off on me. Yeah, yeah. And um, while I was working with him on the Marilyn Monroe film, one day he came in and said, here's the dress I want you to draw, you know, blah, 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 blah. And I did it. It was a gown, a see-through dress with diamonds all over it. It Didn't tell me what it was for. When you're at that position, you don't have to know anything. It's none of your business. So I drew it, and um, a couple of weeks later,
1: she was singing "Happy Birthday" to John Kennedy <laughs> in that dress.
0: In that dress, and you know, which it,
1: recently sold for like five million dollars. Yeah, I yeah, think. it did. Four it did. point something. Yeah. And and you know, and then
0: they asked me, "Can you do some other sketches of her in right. that dress?" And I sold it at an auction as well, and I made some money. So wow. it wasn't the worst thing in the world. No. But everybody seems to want to say I designed it, and I didn't. I just drew what he asked me to draw. Well, wow. so and that's your job usually. There's some designers that I work for. Well, basically, Edith, she said, "Read the script, see what you think." You know, and I read it, and she's. What do you think she should be wearing here, and here, and here, and here? And she says she's going for an abortion here. What do you think she should wear? And I go, well, <laughs> I don't know. You know, the stupidest questions. But I guess you have to. You know, when you're a designer, you have to think. Well, she wouldn't put on a party dress, right? And, right. And right. Go do that. So it was interesting. What she would do, she says, I'll be back after lunch, and she comes back. She looks. Oh, this is cute. That's cute. Oh, oh. Mel Shavelson's in his office. I'm going to take these. And she put pencils in her
1: butt. As if she had done Like them. she had just finished oh, them. My she God. scooped
0: them all up and showed them. And sometimes they said yes. Sometimes they said no. And that was one of the most learning times of my life to see right. what something basically that I'd drawn, if they liked that or
1: not, right. or if it worked, or she liked it even. It's funny because people always talk about the fact, I, I think she had more Oscars than anyone she does. else. But that was because she, anytime the department would win one, she got it. Now well, the individual...
0: Well, yeah, yeah. And, but also she, in those days, they had two kinds of Oscars for costumes. They had a Technicolor movie yep. and black and white. Yeah. So very often, most of her Oscars are a big chunk of them, and she has a lot of them. She, I mean, she was great. She knew how to do her interviews and her publicity and give recipes, and, <laughs> you know, and she was on Art Linkletter's house party every week. <laughs> You know, she wanted everyone to know who she was. Right, and right. when they know who you are, very often when you're voting, you go down and you say, oh, you Head, she's always does a good job right. for her. <laughs> They've not even seen the movie. Right, right. You know, that, yeah, that happens. Right.
1: So after these first few years of sort of essentially freelancing, how did you end up with what I think was the first steady job, I believe, beginning in 63 with the Judy Garland show, which, speaking of black and white, I think that was – that was black and right? White. CBS was still black and white at that time. So for you, how did you end up there? And I think that was the beginning of another very important relationship.
0: Well, actually, I was working pretty regularly at Paramount. And then with Jean-Louis, I worked on some Doris Day movies and some, all those kind of stupid glamour movies that had names that had nothing to do with the script. <laughs> you know, just the thrill of it all. Right. And, <laughs> you know, so they laid me off. It was April. And I thought, oh, it's April. The beach is good, you know. (laughs) And I was collecting for the first time unemployment, which I was delighted with. (laughs) And my mother, well, my mother, my stepmother more than my mother. My mother kind of like money just came. She didn't know where, you know. But my stepmother, who was an accountant, she says, well, how long? Well, this job, are you you going to last? I said, no, it just lasts till I finish it and then I'm off. She goes, Wait a minute. You know, that, like that was right. really terrible. Right. Now you don't have a job. Right. But I said, no, I get unemployment because I, I can go back to it again. And all of a sudden she realized I was making more just doing this beginning job at this thing than my father was mm-hmm. making at the Bank of America. I uh, mean, it was like not good. Uh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> She's like, oh, okay. And she ended up working for
1: me eventually, you know. Really? In, okay. the, in the accounting office. But so... Judy Garland Show, you get there, and who well, was the no, head I'll, t- I'll tell you how that worked. I
0: met a friend at the Costume Guild thing, and I got to know several of these young designers that were working, and and, you know, I was at the lowest, lowest level of work on that thing, and I was still considered an assistant sketch artist, whatever they call that thing, associate, maybe, I don't know. We went out to dinner a couple times and I finally I can go out to dinner with somebody and talk about things that I'm interested in. Because usually you don't just go out with people that you think you're gonna have a hot date. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it doesn't it usually there's nothing to talk about. Right. right. Anyway, he was hired to do the costumes for the Judy Garland show, but not Judy Garland. And it turns out that because Judy, who I saw going to the ladies' room, mm-hmm. had just finished a film in England with Edith that Edith had designed, and not very well either. You know, it was, <laughs> it was an awful-looking film. Anyway, she was going to do Judy's costumes for this, mm-hmm. and Edith didn't want to really do television. She's, you know, in those days, television was considered yeah, low-class. Right, right. Yeah. So she came in, and the first show we taped, which was not the first one on the air... Eve decided that she would have like a little black leotard, just add skirts, you know, for the whole show. And this is a show they wanted to change her gown and her whatever, half a dozen times at least during the show. And the first show didn't look very good. And I said to Ray Agian, the designer of the show, of the rest of the show, mm-hmm. let's really dress those girls up in that Mickey Rooney number. Mm-hmm. The first show we had Mickey Rooney on, and we had all these glamorous, you know, kind of dancing showgirls and stuff. And I said, let's make them all look really special. And there's poor Judy in her little black dress, <laughs> <laughs> which, well, you know, I mean, you have to fight for those things. Right. And so we did that, and by the next week, Ray was doing the costumes. Well, all of a sudden, Judy was not the easiest person to kind of corral and control.
1: Because basically at that point of her life, she was... What, drinking a lot, doing a lot of drugs? Well,
0: yes and no. I mean, when she was great, she was amazing, just amazing. She was fabulous. Mm -hmm. That's the thing about her is when she was good, she was the best actress ever. Mm -hmm. She was just fantastic, but she was just so screwed up with things and and insecurities. And
1: I don't know, you know. But Ray, now you're working closely with the Heat. You guys hit it off? Well, we hit it off very well. In fact, we
0: became very close friends. Mm -hmm. And so we did the show and I, I ended up having to do all the chorus clothes for sure. And a lot of the guest stars and we had the best guest stars ever. And because the show was kind of always in trouble, we had different directors, we had different choreographers different set designers even. I mean, it just changed as we went along. And I met all these people, and these are people that I ended up working with and for the next 20 years. And yeah. It was fabulous in that respect. And, and you the, met Liza, the, I think, right? I right. met Liza. Liza was 18. Right. I think she had just finished working in New York in a Best Foot Forward or one of those shows.
1: I think you had said in one of the interviews I read preparing for this that it was sort of through the experience of seeing Ray, who was dealing mostly with, Judy, on that show, seeing what that interaction was like, that you learned it's probably good to keep a little distance between yourself and your clients. Is that- Fair to say. Well, I
0: always have. I mean, I've always been good friends with my clients, but I'm not their best best friend. I don't rush over and sit at the end of the bed and cry with them, you know. When <laughs> when they, I just, I just not what I do. Because he was getting like calls in the middle of the he night. He did. Judy liked him a lot, mm-hmm. and they had a very good relationship. And he made her look. The clothes that we did for her were just like terrific. Yeah. And she'd gotten thinner, so she looked good in them. Mm-hmm. But you know, it was it was tough several times in the middle of the night. Things happened on that show to that woman and she'd be back rehearsing the next day. I mean, you know, off to the
1: hospital, off to the, It's you know, yeah. it was just horrible. I think you said that she had one of the weirder figures that you had to have her design for. What was her? her what, no, she's sh- four foot 11. Yeah. That's a
0: really short girl. Yeah. And long legs. She had these beautiful legs, but really short little body. Mm-hmm. And so it was hard. It yeah. was hard. But, and, and somebody, when they're that small, Everything was small. If you see her in the old movies as a kid, she was tiny, yeah. you know. Five pounds looks like 15 yeah. when you put it on. It just has nowhere to
1: go. So I guess the big takeaway from your years working on that show were just, what, learning to work quickly and sort of on the fly? Well, any time you do weekly television, you better work quickly or you're out
0: of a job if yeah. you don't. I spent a lot of my life doing weekly television. Yeah. And
1: sometimes more than one show a week. The first client that you really became personally associated with, I guess, would have been Mitzi Gaynor. I tell you, I love Mitzi Gaynor. Yeah. yeah, that was my
0: first star lady that decided she was going to really let me do it. And this is like
1: 1966, she's going to do a yeah. Vegas review. Yeah. What was—I mean, we now think of Vegas as the place for flashy showgirl type stuff. Was it already that? Or don't yeah, no, kinda... it was already. And yeah. she loved clothes, and she wasn't
0: happy about her designer she had before. I think he drank a little too much, but that's <laughs> another story. Anyway, we sat down and talked, and I was a fan of hers watching her from the time she was— like 18 in the movies, you know, she was like, well, South Pacific was, she was already a star Mm -hmm. by then, but when she went to Fox, she was just a kid Mm -hmm. and they were like grooming her to be a musical comedy star, but musical comedies basically, Declined in the next few years where there weren't very many. And if they were, they had to be a big one like South Pacific right, or something right. like that. So she wasn't getting the work she wanted. And so they decided to do a nightclub act. Mitzi Gaynor is Miss Show Business. Yes. She knows how to entertain. To this day, right? <laughs> she, to this day. She knows how to tell a joke. Right. She knows how to get a laugh. And she's fabulous. And she loves clothes. And she loves to change every single right. number she does. It, it's another look. And you don't wait 20 minutes to see her. (laughs) She's out, like, within seconds.
1: And it was on the basis of her Vegas review that you kind of first caught the attention of Carol Burnett, right? That's right, yeah. Yeah.
0: By 66, 67, Ray and I had done a special together. By this time, I was saying, if I'm going to work this hard, I have to get equal credit. So we got equal credit on that. He went off to London to do Dr. Doolittle, and I ended up doing the whole damn show. But we got the first Emmy Ever for Her costumes. Costume is yeah. On, right. And that was fabulous. And so Carol Burnett had watched that special because it had everybody in the world on it. It had Jimmy Durante and the Smothers Brothers. This was Alice Through the Looking Alice Glass. Alice Through the Looking Glass. Yeah. And then I won, you know, we got Emmys. Yes. Costumes never won any Emmys. No, no. And then she went to see Ernie Flatt, the wonderful choreographer who was on the Carol Burnett show for the entire 11 years, was doing Mitzi's act. So he wanted Carol and Joe, Carol's husband, mm-hmm. to come up to Vegas and see it. So between the two things, yeah.
1: I was pretty much hired without ever talking to me. Right. And so just to remind people, this is 11 seasons <laughs> that you did with Carol Burnett show. You've said, quote— Not everything was designed. I would rent a lot of stuff. But we were doing 50 to 70 costumes per episode, and we had a show every week.
0: we designed a lot of clothes, believe me, for for a five-day schedule where you start on Monday and you're shooting on Friday. That lot was designed. But- You know, if it was like a lot of Napoleonic uniforms or something, you go to Western Costume and get them because who's going to have time to do that?
1: But 50 to 70 costumes per episode
0: is unbelievable. Well, we did musical numbers. to open the show quite Mm -hmm. often. We did a big one at the end always. And then one little sketch and blackouts and all kinds of crazy stuff in that show. It wasn't like one story. How big a team, though,
1: would you have working under you at that time?
0: I had, I don't know, like a half a dozen... I had one man I went to high school with Mm -hmm. and he came in and I said, I want you to help me with the men's clothes because so many of those we have to rent Mm -hmm. because of uniforms and whatever. Mm -hmm. And he was so talented to start with. I'd have a meeting on Monday morning and by Wednesday, Thursday afternoon, it would be on a rack ready to go and fitted and and everything. He was great. And then Ray and I opened a shop called Elizabeth Courtney Costumes. Elizabeth Courtney was the lady that had made all of Judy's clothes on the Judy Garland Mm -hmm. show. And she was the lady that had done all the work at Columbia for Marlena Dietrich and Rita Hayworth and everybody. She really understood how to make beautifully made glamorous clothes. Mm -hmm. And that's what I needed. Yeah. That set us off in the right direction because we were... The first year on The Carol Burnett Show, I was having a terrible time working out of a costume house. The quality wasn't good enough and it was just crazy. I mean, the shows looked okay, but it got better when we have somebody really knew what they were doing.
1: I have to ask you, of course, about a couple of the most iconic costumes from that show. (laughs) You know where this is going. Yeah, I know. Um, (laughs) So let's start with the... Gone with the Wind parody, where called Went with the Wind with <clears throat> Starlet O'Hara and of course the Curtain Rod dress. So, whose idea was this?
0: It was mine. They wrote the script. It was a funny sketch to start with. It was a long sketch. It was it had a commercial in the middle, I think. It was that long. Yeah. And Donna Shore played Melanie, and <laughs> and Harvey Corman played Rat R- right, Butler. Right, right. You know, and it was just it was funny. And and Vicky Lawrence was Butterfly McQueen. I mean, she was just like. Fantastic and funny, (laughs) funny, funny. No blackface, none of that, but you know, she might as well have had blackface. It was, she was, she was good. You know, I read the script and said, well, she takes down the drapes and runs up the stairs and comes down in the drapes. And you're going, well, I could make an outfit out of the drapes like they did in the movie. And even in the movie, when she comes out dressed in the drapes, you start to laugh because you say, yeah, sure. She made that outfit. Of course she did. Yeah, how clever is Scarlett O'Hara? It just wasn't coming. You know, it just wasn't working. I had an outfit that I had made for another special that was like a version of the one from the movie. It was part of a musical number. And it was about fashion and whatever. And there it was the green. It was all ready to go. It would have fit Carol. But that's not funny. You know, I was putting on an outfit that looks like the one in the movie. That's not funny at all. What am I going to do? And it isn't the only thing on the show. There's a million different things on that one show. Mm-hmm. And i that's the one thing that was driving me crazy. And finally, it came to me what to do just to put the rod in. You know, and hang it on her. And Carol could pull it off better than anybody.
1: She must have been so blown away by I mean, that's a great contribution. Well, I
0: had her come in and I said, I have to show you. I think this is going to work. And she started to laugh. (laughs) She just thought, you know, this is ridiculous. (laughs) And we kept it a secret kind of. So, you know, Harvey, the first time he saw it, wouldn't. Well, first of all, I think... (laughs) She showed him because she didn't want him to break up,
1: (laughs) but usually he would. Right, right. Well, that got one of the uh, biggest laughs, I think, on the show's history. Biggest
0: ever. It was the funniest time. I usually was never on stage, but I was up at the top of the stairs because her dresser was like five foot tall and this tiny little woman. And she's up at the top of these stairs. You have to climb a ladder to get to, to put the thing on her so she could come down. We never cut on those shows. Mm We would do a whole chunk, a whole sketch, and then they would cut and change the scenery because we had no fly space. I said, I'll go up. I'll get it on her. We'll get it on her. We'll get the whole thing on her. I'll help you. And so we stood there as she walked down the stairs, and the place just, like, it was, like, vibrant. It was, like... What do they call that thing in the movie theater where everything shakes and the music is loud? It was like that. It was weird.
1: That's cool. Well, and I heard you heard some feedback (laughs) from the actual Gone with the Wind costume designer.
0: Yeah, Walter Plunkett, who designed that whole movie and was a wonderful designer of period clothes through all the 40s and the 50s and the 60s. I mean, he was really, really good he wanted a sketch He says could i have a sketch of that he loved it. Of that that yeah. outfit yeah. and i gave it to him and then he gave, he was funny he gave me a sketch of me in a race with edith head <laughs> 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 which which i have to this day i mean this i treasure it That's it's like awesome. a little cartoon of me and a cartoon of edith and i've got i'm holding on to feathers and beads and and she's got her oscars under her arm <laughs> you know cuz the men in hollywood most of the men designers in hollywood just hated her. Hated. They hated her. She was <laughs> such a publicity hound and, and was more important than the actual work right. as a rule. I liked her. I liked working with her because right. I got to design more. Right. But the men, any men that you ever talk
1: to about Edith, it was like their eyes. Were, they just <laughs> get furious. One other costume from the Carol Burnett years, Mrs. Wiggins, Dippy's secretary. Well, Tim Conway, the
0: late Tim Conway, who was brilliant, wrote that sketch and wrote it for himself and for Carol. And he wrote it as an elderly old lady, you know, I mean, just who was the secretary and couldn't get it together. And we had done so many sketches about old folks, Harvey and Carol and Carol, and then everybody would put on their gray wigs and their, you know, their print dresses and their body pads and be old people. And I said, you know, we've done so much of this. And there was a group called the Gray Panthers at the time. I said, the Grey Panthers have been sending you letters and they're not happy. Can't we do somebody different than that? Because it's gotten so it's not really funny anymore. Mm-hmm. And she agreed with me. And she said, Well, what should we do? And I said, Let's dress like those temps that come in, that sit at the desk and watch the clock and do their nails and don't get much done and don't know how to do anything. <laughs> And so we gave her a Farrah Fawcett hairdo and a push-up bra and a tight, tight, tight skirt.
1: So that she had to kind of shuffle.
0: Well, she had to walk with her knees together. And I said, now, stick out your butt. You know, it was like one of those things. And she goes, oh, I get it. Okay. And it became a regular. Very often certain characters in the show became regulars. But sometimes we'd say, oh, we think this could be a regular, and we'll do a whole character, and then it just lays there. No, it doesn't get repeated. That's no, great. But that same thing happened when she was doing her impression of like Gloria Swanson in Sunset <laughs> Boulevard as Nora Desmond, she was called. Nora Desmond, It wasn't right. much of a difference right. in, in name. So you
1: did those 11 years with The Cal Burnett Show. Then you were doing Mama's Family and all kinds of other things with well, her Ma- over the years.
0: Mama's Family, I did with Red Turner, who... I later worked with a lot on the Shining Cher show, but I had established the look of the Mama's Family group. And so Joe Hamilton, who was Carol Burnett's husband at the time, he gave me some money every week just for having established the original. Mm-hmm. So I basically didn't do Mama's Family, although I did get an M yeah. with Rhett. <laughs> and we tied with Dynasty, which was really funny because this was this was like low-end, low-class, <laughs> funny clothes, and there was Dynasty with all its beads and shoulder pads and whatever, you
1: know. Right. Well, what was it? The, I mean, I guess you and Carol to this day seem to have a very special Bond, what, why do. do you think you really hit it off to the extent that you would work for all of those years together? Well, when you, I know you were also doing other things simultaneously, and oh, some yeah. of those I'll a I'll lot, mention in a, a second. Lot. But I mean, that's a pretty well, long time. We
0: were similar in many ways. You know, her grandmother brought her up. Her parents were both troubled and alcoholic, and whatever. And so they lived in the same maybe apartment house. But she and her grandmother lived together, mm-hmm. and they went to the movies a lot. So she knew all these movies. She's a little older than me. So she knew something that I didn't really know Mm -hmm. that well. But basically, when we would do our movie takeoffs, which we did many after a while, you know, really a lot, we really got it. And I said, well, what if you do this? And then I made her special eyebrows for Joan Crawford. (laughs) You know, in the 50s, Joan Crawford, you know, the eyebrows just became like caterpillars. They were ridiculous. (laughs) And I think they really grew. They were real. You know, I went to the wig lady and we made little ones on wig lace and they glued them on. You know, it was just so much it's so fun, funny. and she has the best time. She would do anything for a laugh, as long as it's a good laugh.
1: Right, right. You know, we just had her on the podcast a few months ago, and she was uh, is she the best. She's singing your absolutely the best, but also it was fun to hear her talk about you, and now get to hear you oh, talk really? about her. So, oh, well, that's fun. Yeah. I
0: mean, I but we really, I, she trusted me so, and I said, "No, nah, oh, don't black that tooth out. Black the one over here. It's right. funnier when you smile <laughs> if that one's out. The center one, I think, is just like an old hillbilly number." But I mean, is when
1: is it your sense? I don't. I don't have the sense that that many stars of a TV show or a movie have that much trust and willingness to work with their costume designer. What
0: stars have have shows like that? No, where, there's where nothing. they constantly change characters and and don't mind looking bad, or, or funny, or weird, or whatever. She would do anything.
1: What's the closest thing today? Saturday Night Live. I mean, that's well, Saturday
0: Night Live is is, is certainly owes a bit of debt to the Carol Burnett show, yeah. and all those people that graduated from there—it's so funny. Just idolize Carol Burnett, yeah. yeah. And and because of that, all of a sudden I have you know Tina Fey and and, and Amy Poehler all coming over and say, oh Bob Mackie blah 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 you know and it's like really you even know who I am, <laughs> but they they're so funny they really know what we've done yeah. and, and it's always good. For me, I mean, at least somebody's watching
1: figuring, you know. <laughs> well, so it was in the midst of the, I think, quite early in the Carol Burnett show run that you first crossed paths with one share, right? I mean, <laughs> yeah. I, and we should just, before you even elaborate on that, I thought one of the really, one of the perfect quotes she has said about you, I think recently in the context of the share show, somebody was interviewing her and she said, without bob mackey i would have been a peacock without feathers (laughs) she's quite poetic isn't she that was pretty funny but how did so how did you two first meet and, and what were your first impressions of her well i you
0: know i knew about
1: her as as Sonny and Cher, when they were
0: had their height of, you know, that half a dozen hit records that they had, and they made a lot of money. And then all of a sudden, it was a novelty, and it just kind of... And they looked funny. They were like the world's first hippies, <laughs> visually. And I remember doing numbers. I worked on the Hollywood Palace for a while. We did a number of elegant people and street people. And of course, they all looked like Sonny and Cher, that I dressed them, you know. <laughs> So I knew who they were, and I thought, oh, so they're coming on, and they're going to be in the finale, and it's a showboat coming finale. Coming on Carol Burnett. Carol, yeah. On the Carol Burnett show. They used to have people, the first year, we would have, like, like young pop stars of sorts on the Carol Burnett show for that younger audience, because they weren't sure who their audience was mm-hmm. or would be. Mm-hmm. So in She Walks. And I'm thinking she's going to be this big hulking girl with kind of gothy-looking hippie clothes. She had a little mini dress on. She had little hair and pigtails, and she's the most adorable thing ever. And you know, and then she she put on her little costume that we were doing for the for the showboat finale. And I thought, oh, look at that little figure. Oh my <laughs> God, she's beautiful. And she was she was kind of tan. It was summertime, and and I thought, well, wow, she's cute. That's 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 fine and later on she was looking at me we were going we were i was fixing a just a little broken thread on a beaded dress and she's oh i'd like to have a beaded dress one day <laughs> 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 which where well, we hear it now you just feel right. yeah <laughs> 6000 dresses later right 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 um she said, but we can't afford it right now they were going through a kind of that
1: nut, low period yeah. that
0: low period of people knew who they were but but they weren't getting booked they weren't selling records right. it was it was tricky and that was at the time that they went off to Vegas and redid the whole, the whole thing and, and learned to do comedy. And, and it, you don't learn overnight. You, it, it comes. You, know, you have to find out what works. And Sonny was brilliant about that.
1: But even as early as that first encounter on The Carol Burnett Show... She was expressing an interest in working with you at some point, or having you no, design a. No, she liked me.
0: Yeah. Actually, she thought I was cute. <laughs> there you go. Well, I, I, mean, I I was younger. You know, I was younger then, and and I was all. It was summer. I was tan, yeah. and I had my hair was all curly and blonde, and, yeah. and she thought, oh, here's cute. She did. She try to put a moves not on really, you? Not really. Not really. She just liked me. Yeah. You know, and she thought. Oh he's young he knows yeah. she doesn't she never had any any confidence in anybody older and for her older was over 30 <laughs> you know they, they really it really was at the time she says you know I'm never going to live past 30. I just don't—it's not worth it. Ugh. You know, I, I'm not great—yeah, oh, okay. Well, and I was just—I was pushing that direction very quickly at the time. And I went, well, whatever. She said, oh, Sonny's already 34 or whatever, you know, <laughs> just,
1: I don't know. But she's saying— But she was a child, One you know. day, Bob Mackey, you're going to design clothes for me, well, pretty much?
0: Well, I think in her mind she thought yeah. that. And then all of a sudden she and Sonny were cast on some specials that I was I was booked for. This is like a few years later now. Just Couple of years, yeah. a year or two, there was two or three things that I did with her, and then then they were making a little more money. and Could you could you do this? And I gave her an estimate of what we could do and showed her sketches. And so oh, Sonny wasn't about to spend that money at right, that point. Right. So I said, well, "When you're ready, I'll be ready. Right. Don't, don't worry." <laughs> and she always liked what I did for her on these specials because she wasn't paying for that. You right. see, right? And by seventy one, I got this call from Cher. She says. I'm doing this TV show for the summer, Summer Replacement, and I want you to do the clothes. I said, oh, sure, I'm, I'm going on vacation.
1: You know? But I ended up doing it. Because you just she, she was but the thing, relentless?
0: Summer Replacement shows, and I did several of them in mm-hmm. those days because I wasn't, the, you know, I'm, you know in the summer, you don't, everyone's on vacation, right. so you take the job. And nobody ever had enough money. Mm-hmm. usually you had to shop it if you could. Mm-hmm. And, um, and I said, fine, you know, we'll do it. But then it was such a good, the, the producers were so
1: good. This and they, was the Sonny and Cher show. The Sonny and
0: Cher show. And they had all these great ideas and, and laughing had already made its place on the scene. So we knew that things were different then. You had quick, quick, quick cuts and lots of little gags and things. And, and it worked
1: beautifully for them. And for you, it actually was kind of convenient because you're still doing the Carol Burnett show. <laughs> right. Where were they in relation to each other? Well, they were next door. On they the were CBS. on the
0: same, they were adjoining a, a, a studios. You had to go through the men's room to get to one or the other, <laughs> or the ladies' room, right. and share just because she just, you know, wanted, she would walk through the men's room and say, I'm coming through, boys, and all these guys at the urinal you know, flinching. <laughs> but but it was, and she would just laugh. She thought it was funny. Right, I mean,
1: well, one of the things I couldn't quite wrap my head around, I, I read that you said that Carol Burnett and Cher, quote, were almost identical in measurements, close yep. quote, and it's so you true. would trade outfits?
0: Well, in the first, in the beginning, there wasn't any budget, and Carol had been on the air already since 67, so Carol had, you know, had a Minnie Mouse costume. If Cher needed a Minnie Mouse costume, it fit her perfectly. They had the same measurements. They, had, they were the same height. They were the same sign, but they don't look anything. like... No, alike. who would have thought? Yeah. But nobody, you know, Carol has a whole other, other, uh, whatever it is persona. That, a persona. Yeah. She's like like the funny lady next door who's quite chic, but but not ultra glamorous right. like that. And so it was always funny when they would share. They would they would do shows together over at Carol's show, mm-hmm. and then she, Carol would come over and do a whole a whole show with Share, where she would. And they worked great together. The, the, yeah. They were so different. Yeah, and yet. Yet they they could sing together. They right. could do all kinds of comedy. Non-threatening. To yeah, each other. it was yeah. it was quite quite fabulous. Some of those early early shows you can still see. They're coming out with a whole a whole
1: collection of Sunny and Shares and Cher uh, shows cool. from that period. Were you doing a lot with sequins prior to working with Share? How did no. sequins become?
0: No 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 sequins. You know everyone says you know like sequins come out of my blood or whatever. <laughs> I don't know that. It just happened that she was glamorous and fun. You know, I used them where I needed them. But so was, her, it was certainly her Mitzi Gaynor you. had her share of them in seen, Vegas. Yeah, right. But but that that was just you do it in the right way for the right person. Now people seem to think all I all I do is that.
1: But it was because it, of the it, share because show. the share show is where yeah, yeah. Uh, right. So can I ask you just about a few of these again? Just like we did earlier. Just like first thing that comes to mind about a few of these iconic dresses you did with, or outfits with Cher. Let's start with the 74 Met Gala. This is the sort of nude <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> one that caused the stir. Yes, You it, escorted it, her. Well,
0: it did. It did cause a bit of a stir. It, it originally, let me see if I can remember when it all came right out. Nobody had really seen her in this dress. It was photographed for Vogue magazine for their holiday issue. Mm-hmm. The Met Ball used to be and it wasn't anything like it is now. It was just a party mm-hmm. and, a, and a wonderful exhibit mm-hmm. of clothes. And it was the Hollywood exhibit. Dionne Vreeland had come out to Hollywood and gathered up things from the archives and whatever. And, and also she's looking over, she'd seen the you know, Cher. She'd already been on for a few years by that time. It was 1974 that the Men's mm-hmm. Ball was. So she looked at all our clothes and the way they were made and how beautifully they were made. I mean, they were like couture clothes. And she just got very excited. So all of a sudden, here I am, practically a beginner. I had, you know, I had share outfits in there at Carbonetta. I had Barbara Streisand outfits in in that exhibit. It was fabulous for me. Because you were already working with Barbara too. Yeah, we yeah we did. I'm trying to think now. So. It was in Funny Lady. Yeah. Oh, yeah, right. Funny, Funny lady. lady. Oh,
1: and, your first Oscar nommer. No, yeah, that's
0: right. It came out in 75, but... It, I
1: mean, we glossed over. You'd already had an Oscar nomination for Lady Sings the Blues. Lady With Diana Ross. With Diana yeah. Ross. Then yeah. three years later for Funny and Lady. In
0: 68, I did a big special with her and got another Emmy.
1: Oh, my God. So, this so is... I
0: have nine Emmys now. Yeah. So, and, you know, it's kind of like... And one and one Tony nomination. Yes,
1: well, and that <laughs> we'll update that in a few days. What uh, we'll see, what I else. don't know. Who but was. okay, so the and the, the dress from the Met Ball also was the same one that was on the cover of Time a year later. It wasn't a year later. It was just a few months. Just a few months. Yeah,
0: and you see, at that point, Sonny and Cher had broken up, and I took her to the Met Ball. And it was fun. And she had done the photo session for Richard Avedon in the dress. And nobody paid that much attention. It was in vogue, and it was black and white. And all of a sudden, and so we, we send her off to, <laughs> I, I went with her to the, to the Met Ball. And, you know, both of us were looking pretty good. We were young and uh, whatever.
1: And people were like, Oh. Oh, because what was visible? A thousand
0: photographers all of
1: a sudden appeared. Just if somebody hasn't, you know, if they if they're trying to visualize what we're talking about, it's a nude colored, but also there's quite a bit that's visible, right? Well,
0: a nude, very sheer dress, right? All beaded, and and then with little little feathers, uh, vulture feathers. Everybody thinks it's ostrich. snot. it They're all vulture feathers, <laughs> stripped vulture.
1: Right. And so was that address that you were particularly, or not addressed? Well, it was out, one, It's
0: one that I did that I wanted to, to make a little bit of a, a noise when we when we were in Vogue magazine. Yes. The Vogue magazine layout was interesting. It started at the turn of the century and worked its way up through the through the decades mm-hmm. to the nineteen I don't know was it nineteen seventies I guess. You know, it was futuristic right. or what whatever anyway. Anyway, she wore she I said, What do you what do you think we should wear to the you know, to the Metropolitan? And she said, Oh, I wanna wear that new dress. Well, of course it was new. I mean it was it was so see through. Right. And all these kind of divas of the moment were there dressed up but not that good. You know, (laughs) the, the Bianca Jaggers and and the the Marissa Berenson's and all these ladies that were at that moment in time, they were the hotsy totsies. (laughs) And, you know, we, we sat at Down Freeland's table and she had Paulette Gardner, the old 40s movie star there. And, and I, I just had the best time that night. And of course I had stuff in the exhibit and she got photographed. By a million. I mean, Share every did, yeah. every photographer there went, oh, my God, now we can really do something.
1: <laughs> and it was in every paper the next day. But like not everyone, Carol Burnett's not going to have worn that outfit. Was it no, Cher yeah. that would want to push the edge or was it you encouraging her to? No, how man, would, it was
0: Cher, but yeah. Cher could wear anything. There was nothing on Cher's body at that moment in time that ever hung over or wasn't. She could be stark naked and wasn't vulgar. Right. right. You know, it's one of those beautiful bodies.
1: Well, so. And you
0: don't have that forever, but. You right.
1: Know. Well, the, the, the two Oscar dresses we got to talk about 1986, when she's been snubbed <laughs> for a mask, now she's got to present, and right. she's not happy with them, right?
0: Well, she she had been doing these movies, masks. She just was a little motorcycle chick. And then the other one, she wore jeans and sweatshirts, um, silkwood. And, you know, she hadn't been her glamorous self for a while. At all. And I said, well, what do you want to, well, how do you want to look? I knew she didn't want to look just in an evening gown, but I said, well, how, how would you, what would you like to wear? Well, I don't want to look like a housewife in a, in, in a, you know, in an evening gown. And I said, I don't think you will, dear. Yes. But she says, let's do something Indian like we used to, because she was kind of, had done half breed and all of that. Now she can't even wear the war bonnets anymore because the Indian ladies are getting upset. So yeah, only, cultural men, appropriation. only men can wear that. Yes. But, I mean, this is like 40-some years later. Yeah. They decided, well, a lady shouldn't wear that.
1: <laughs> well,
0: <laughs> you know, it's a little late, don't you think?
1: And then uh, two years later when she won for Moonstruck, she had quite an outfit as well. She did. Another kind of see-through-y,
0: right. glamorous, but, but very share like and there are a lot of people who were just horrified, saying, well, you know, the fashion people, well, that's not fashion. And I said and "I said to so somebody who asked me about it, I said, no, it's not fashion. It's her. It's, <laughs> that's, that's her. That's what she wanted to wear. I didn't push it on her. In fact, very often I'd say, are you sure you want to go this far? Yeah, yeah.
1: And what do you think was driving her to do that? She like the... Attention, or she wanted to enjoy it while she had the body for that, or what? Both. Yeah. You know, and and she looked good. It never. Yeah. You
0: could never say she didn't look good. In no. It. No. She looked amazing, and got that girl knows how to get press. <laughs> <laughs> you know, she, and there, you know, there's poor Donna Michi who received the award when she when she gave it out. It would, she had that black Mohawkie right. dress and bare midriff, and all this black and I mean, she she looked like you know, the Grim Reaper, right, <laughs> right off the reservation. And there was photographs. Don Amici said the next day, he said, if she hadn't been there giving me that award, they, they wouldn't have printed any pictures of me. <laughs>
1: so he was happy. He, was, <laughs> he okay. was very happy. So if I mention just a few of these other clients of yours, just the, can you share the first thing that, Comes to mind, just a sentence or two. I'll, I'll try. That's not my best. Well, we'll give, moment, it, we'll give it a go. I'll, I'll give it a try. We mentioned already that you first worked with Diana Ross in that there was a special, I think, in 1969, and then right. you did Lady Sings the Blues and right. right through.
0: Yeah, and I worked with her a lot for several years. Now she does her own.
1: Now she does. Okay, but yeah. I think you'd said she would borrow Cher stuff, but like, well, all right, she, Diana Ross.
0: Diana Ross and Cher became really close friends. In fact, they even shared a boyfriend at one point. I mean, not at the <laughs> same time, but but you know. It was a cra- that crazy guy, Gene Simmons?
1: Oh, yeah, 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 You know,
0: with the big tongue? Right. Anyway, he, uh, <laughs> he, he was Cher's boyfriend. He's smart. Gene Simmons is really a smart guy, and she needed to be with a smart guy. Right. And then I guess it didn't work out. And Before you know it, he was, he was hanging out with Diana Ross, so don't ask me. I wasn't there. <laughs> All I know is what I read in the paper. Right.
1: All right, so that's her, Barbara Streisand. We talked about you got the Oscar nomination for Funny Lady. Funny Lady, but which which she—I think you said in other interviews—this is not going to break any news. Uh, nothing nobody's oh, dear, heard before. I, but was well, a, a, a little bit difficult?
0: Well, there's not difficult. She just—I mean, from the, she was on the Judy Garland show, and and there's this new girl, 21 or whatever she was, and she bought some Italian shoes, and they the they were white, and they didn't match her outfit and she never had shoes that expensive in her life at that point now of course she has everything but and i said well i can dye them down for you you can and she couldn't she 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 wouldn't trust me and i said well i have to dye downstairs and she's all right so she goes with me all the way down into the wardrobe department and i mixed the dye and we had a little sample of the color then i and i put it on on a piece of the satin from her shoe that that comes with the shoes and got it right and I was going to dye them, and she took the, the dauber away from me, and she dyed them herself, <laughs> standing there. And I thought, oh well, yeah, it's just to... the way she is—you can't, you can't change that. That's you know, talk about control, <laughs> and always questioning everything, right, everything, right. everything. But that's Barbara. You yeah. know, you don't, you don't worry about it. The woman was smart, smart, smart. Still smart, of course, and uh, has has great
1: sense of, of how she wants things to look. Tina Turner, I think that she and Cher had worked a lot together as well, right? And now this was when Ike was just left the picture.
0: Well he was there. I the first time I saw Tina Turner, she was with the Ike and Tina review, you know, with the girls and Ike and Tina. And I thought, wow, look at her. That's a star. That's not a backup girl. That's a star. And then then he made her a star. You know, he used to, you know, Ike and Tina Review with Tina Turner. I mean, you know, she was more exciting than he ever was. Mm-hmm. And then he was you know, he wasn't a good guy in many ways. And so she was trying to leave him and she was being booked into variety shows and thinks she's a good entertainer, it's unbelievable. And they were kind of going from hotel to hotel, she and her assistant, so he couldn't find her. And it was a little tricky. And then they decided to to she ha- she needed to make some money and, and had a nightclub act yeah. and and I dressed her up for the nightclub act and I gave her all kinds of crazy outfits because right. she always she'd come in and she'd bring old kind of not expensive evening gowns but ones she'd find in Paris in these little shops and things not not couture right and um, she wanted to make them more. More cavewoman like, and I said, okay, right. you know, and we put it on, and I'd start cutting and pinning, and I'd cut away pieces and make it ragged, and and that became kind of her look. And before I knew it, I was designing
1: stuff for her. Right. People always ask me about the women, but what about Elton John? I mean, yeah, you said a, I, I dressed him? him like I dressed him like sort of a male showgirl close quote. Well, not really, <laughs> you know. He—I I said to him, I
0: said—I had done some things for him on the share on special with Bette Midler and, and Elton, and that's a great show if you get a chance to see it. It still works beautifully. Mm-hmm. And he said, would you ever do clothes for me? And I said, well, sure, I'd love to. Uh, what, what kind of things would you like? Because I didn't, you know, he, he wore overalls and little t-shirts and little jackets and kind of, you know, he, he was like a little Dickens character almost at that time. <laughs> he, was, he was kind of rounded, but but he wasn't chubby. He was just, it was good. But, but he wanted to dress up and he loved glitter and he loved jewelry. I mean, the, the, this man used to go out and buy diamonds and give them to people because he just loved buying them or whatever. I don't know. <laughs> anyway. And I, I said, well, what, what would you like me to do for you? He said, well, I'd like some things like shares. And I went, oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> and I said, are you sure? And so I, I drew some things up, you know, jumpsuits that had holes and had mirrors around them. And, and one time he had a big, big feather cape that went clear across the stadium stage. Wow. And he was carried into the stadium <laughs> by this practically naked Mr. World black man. <laughs> and who became later became a, my my trainer at the gym and i heard the whole st- all the all the good stories anyway that's another story anyway and so he carried him in and set him down and he had like an aviator cap of just mirrors like like a mirror ball and the lights were hitting it it, it was pretty pretty funny he loved that that's because great. you know this is somebody who sits at a piano and just plays one song after another and sings them is exciting but he wanted more than that he wanted to be you know it's like it was like a new age Liberace at yeah, the time. Yeah, yeah. In fact, in the movie, I just saw the movie the other day. Yeah, uh, what do you think? It, it, he is asking his mother something, and she's sitting there in the television watching Liberace over here, and she's not uh, approving of him, <laughs> and, uh, poor Elton, at all. And I'm thinking, yeah, okay, I yeah, get that.
1: Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> For the Oscars, in addition to the three nominations Lady Sings the Blues, Funny Lady, and Pennies from Heaven, you also worked with them in other years. I know that in '88. I guess you did a bunch of costumes for them and got an Emmy nomination for that. Then you did for, for who? For the at the Academy Awards. Oh, the well, and, but then there was another thing with where when Whoopi Goldberg was hosting in '99, she comes right. out in the. Well, I
0: used to do those those
1: shows, yeah. all those
0: musical numbers that everybody in New York hates because you're on it. You know, you're watching it at midnight, it's just horrible. <laughs> but now things have gotten a little better. But
1: so okay, so those were some things you did with the Oscars. But other outside the box things, I mean, you. Did Barbie? People forget that you did, sometimes forget that you did well, Barbie. Well,
0: Barbie was just like a, a joke kind of at the beginning. Yeah, sure, I'll do Barbie. And they had all the Seventh Avenue designers would do, you know, an Oscar De La Renta Barbie and a, and a Donna Karen Barbie and whatever. And I said, yeah, sure, I'll do a Barbie. I said, but, you know, I can't just do a cocktail dress. <laughs> I've got to do something that people expect me to do. Otherwise, why do a Barbie to start with? So what, what did that mean? Well, I did a I did a Barbie that was kind of share like, but because they weren't painted to be share, right, be share. Right, right. I made her blonde. Completely <laughs> blonde. Which share is a lot of the time now, but Right, right. Anyway, it's, it was kind of gold and it was, it was very glamorous and the hair was pulled back and had a cone with a big long blonde ponytail. The doll came out the next I don't know, whenever, six months later, whenever they do it, you know, it's got to all be made in China and whatever. (laughs) But all of a sudden, Madonna was doing her tour, and she had plopped this big blonde ponytail with a cone. And it was like the doll looked like a Madonna doll. (laughs) And it became this huge selling uh, doll. And all of a sudden, they said, would you do more for us? You know. So I was doing these sort of like... Like Barbie meets Las Vegas meets whatever <laughs> every year. Probably introduced for lo- you to a for whole lot of years. new group of people, yeah. Forty-some dolls later.
1: But I don't do it anymore. One thing that I read, which I was surprised to discover, was you said, quote, the fashion world never really accepted me. I was always a costume designer, not a fashion designer, close quote. And I know that you had tried, I think, from 82 to 93, you'd had a studio in on 7th Avenue. Right. Right.
0: No, we did good business, but they always they just always thought that I was I don't know, you know, that it was too glamorous or too theatrical. And then, of course, I couldn't I couldn't stand to do a show, a fashion show without doing a finale that kind of like like made him wake Blow up away, and, and, yeah. and have a good time. And there's show pieces and you'd have a few pieces that you never sold. You just, it was kind of good for press or whatever.
1: But has that changed with time? Do people, I mean, it, it's crazy to me. I think fashion designer, I think of you. I, I can't imagine that uh, you're <laughs> saying that the within the industry, there's still that kind of snobbery. Uh,
0: well, no, it's kind of changed now. Recently at the, at the Met Ball, I, I met all these European designers mm-hmm. that were there. You know they're around middle age now. They're they're younger middle age, <laughs> right. if you, whatever that is. Right. That were young kids in school when I was doing all these share shows and different kinds of and and I did I did Vegas big huge Vegas shows and stuff because that was so much fun. Mm-hmm. And they were watching me. I didn't even know. I knew all their names. They were famous. But when they were in school, they were collecting pictures of stuff that I had done, and they knew who I was and all of this nonsense. And I was in California, you know, just. Chomping out all that glitter and flash,
1: but <laughs> <laughs> just, so they've they've now it's now kind of uh, grown into it with the but, people but who are now. All
0: of a sudden, now they're saying you were such a huge influence on fashion, and and you changed the whole look of the red carpet, and you did this, and you did this, and you did this, and they just gave me an award the other night for it. So it, it's. Um, you know, a lifetime achievement award. I'm going really after all these years <laughs> they I mean,
1: finally got it.
0: Yeah, but it's okay. You know, I I, I wasn't unhappy. I I love doing what
1: I do. Well, so to have a full circle moment here where you get to the share show now they tell you they're going to do this show and <laughs> you're not not only do they want to use your fashion in it, but they want to have you as a character in it. What did what did you make of that? And and, and what did it entail for you? Well, first you? of all, The
0: producer of Floaty Suarez came to see me almost 20 years ago, not quite, I mean 19 or something like that, and said, I have this idea to do a Broadway musical about Cher. Mm -hmm. And he says, you have to do the costumes, you just have to. And I said, well, when you get it all together and get the money, get the producer, whatever, whatever, just call me. You know, I'm sure it'd be fun to do. And this went on for many years. And it never happened, and I never thought it would. At that point, you know, after after a few years, you think, well, he's probably bored with the idea, and he's going on. But it turns out that they were doing it. But the director that they'd hired had another designer in mind, and what? Not even a designer. Well, she's a designer, but she's really a stylist. Mm-hmm. And I thought, how can you do this share? How can you do a share show with a stylist? You're going to go over to the Saks and pick up a few share outfits, <laughs> <laughs> you know? It's- but I, I said, I'd still like to do it. And it it was their choice,
1: you know. But I mean, how much work was this for you? But then they
0: wanted to know, well, who owns those, who owns those designs and and I own those designs. Yeah. so they were going to, they were going to pay me to do them. But then how is this person going to know how to make those clothes? Because they're not, you know, not regular. You don't just drop a sketch off and go away (laughs) and, and hope to come back to that. Right, right. Anyway, How many... Cher insisted that I do it. Yes, and then
1: it was, that's was it. But I mean, it's a I I can't recall seeing a show where the costumes get applause. Maybe once in a while, but like yeah, this well, was
0: the, you. Ha- what... But it was just it was, it was it was geared for that. I mean, yeah. they didn't add that. That was already in the script before I ever arrived on the scene.
1: No, I know. But I'm I'm saying it. It's an amazing testament to you that people, you know, even before your character, I think gets. <laughs> so I mean, let's talk about that. You've got a guy playing you in a, sh- at a Broadway show. Right. Well,
0: that's. Weird. You know, (laughs) when you've never had that before. You have to dress yourself. (laughs) All of a sudden, you know, you're not you're not Edison or 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 Roosevelt or somebody (laughs) like that. You know, you're there I am, you know, Bob Mackey up there, this guy with a blonde wig on, singing and dancing, and and all these girls dressed to the
1: nines. It's really fun. At the end of the show, they come out in their what you've called warrior goddess outfits. Yes. Um, the whole thing is like a—I <laughs> know it's a, a, a great spectacle. No, but I mean, it's beautiful. And so to be nominated for a Tony for the first time, to be going into this on Sunday, you know, and just all the sort of appreciation that's been coming your direction as a result of this show and the whole kind of... All the memories it brings back about all your other work with Cher—is that what's that been like for you? It's been crazy. I didn't
0: expect it really. I thought we'd get nominated, but I've been getting a lot of attention. Let's let's hope after all this attention, I'll I'll get one. Who knows? You don't know, and you don't do a show to get an award. I mean, that's not why you do it. You do it because you love doing it. Other, if you didn't love doing these kind of clothes, you'd want to commit suicide because it's hard. It's just plain hard.
1: Right. But it's. I mean, it's. uh, This is. Incredible, the, the outfits in this. I I'm not somebody who knows very much about well, it, the, but I can tell it's but just. It, this but is her her whole persona for so many years was about what is she
0: wearing, right? What is she going to wear? And people would watch the TV shows in in, in the old days. Not just to see, there's a fascination and a charisma about the woman. People really are always interested yeah. in her, in her life, in the way she looks, what she's going to wear. Um, and then, of course, her songs. And, and, and people, I see people in the, in the theater that, that must have been kids when, when that show, those shows were on the air. They know all the words. Uh, yeah. They get up and dance. It's crazy. Whole busloads from New Jersey come right, roaring, right. in Full of <laughs> full of people to see the share show. I mean, it's it's just really kind of amazing.
1: Just some big picture closing stuff okay, just the first okay, thing. Okay. I talk too much. Outside. No, I am thrilled. I really appreciate it. All right. So you began designing clothes at a time I guess when the average American would still dress up nicely to go to a Broadway show or to get on an airplane or stuff that is out the window today, right? So how do you feel about that as somebody who loves clothes and fashion, whatever. Do you think that society overall is well, let it go? Uh,
0: yeah. I, I think I think most people I mean just go just go outside Eighth Avenue and take a look. Yeah. You know, it's pretty scary for the most part. People <laughs> people have gotten very fashion has become very casual, which is a good thing. You know, that that clothes are wearable and easy and you're comfortable and you can do your work. But but it doesn't translate to sloppy. And that's what I see every day. Or just just downright but ugly right right you know you just go wait a minute <laughs> you're you're on the street go home and get dressed <laughs> especially here in new york and the minute it's warm look out you see more skin than you ever want to see
1: <laughs> okay so now for somebody who's known for to use your word and i think it, it, it i mean it only in the best sense but like for flashier right flashy outfits a lot of the, your most fam- famous outfits are flashy you yourself I've always read, and I, I guess you dress pretty conservatively. Is How do you reconcile those two things? Well, I'm not a drag queen. No. <laughs> <laughs> but you don't have the same desire I mean, it, to, like, no, peacock it? No? No. no. Never?
0: Well, no. I like to be dressed if it's if it's the right thing to do. I went to that ball. I mean, everybody was dressed up like people thought I dressed people. Right, but and you're I, not wearing, like— I had like... my tuxedo on, you know. <laughs> I mean, you know, that's—I'm I, 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 not— you know, not looking I'm, for attention. I'm not that, looking for attention yeah. that way.
1: There are designers, however, that do like to dress up a bit. Yes. Who do you most wish you'd had the chance to dress but didn't? Oh, I don't know.
0: You know, you, you can't... Well, I mean, no, you love
1: those old movies.
2: Is well, there somebody from those? I love those old movies.
0: Yeah, I mean, I, I, could have, I could have... Actually, I could have dressed Monroe very well. Yeah. But I I was working for somebody that was, and it was doing very well, but then we never they never finished the film, so... Or, you know, and I love—as a little kid, I loved Betty Grable, you know, and I loved all that stuff. I I wish—many times I think, oh, I wish I lived back in, you know, the the 30s and 40s, 50s, when they were doing all those musicals and stuff. I I would have been at home there.
1: Yeah. Last one. But whatever. When you look at fashion today, where do you see your greatest influence, and what do you hope will be your greatest legacy?
0: I don't think about legacy. I really don't. Everybody has to do what they do. We're all influenced by what you learn as you grow up. You know, you see things, you see things you like. Maybe your mother had a favorite dress when you were five years old. And chances are when you're 35, being a designer on 7th Avenue, you might do a dress kind of like that because you just think it was so beautiful. And maybe it was, you know. So who knows? Just do the best you can and get through life.
1: Well, thank you so much. I really appreciate it. Thank you. Thanks very much for tuning in to Awards Chatter. We really appreciate you taking the time to do that and would really appreciate you taking a minute more to subscribe to our podcast for free on iTunes or your podcast app and to leave us a rating as well. If you have any questions, comments, or concerns, you can reach me via Twitter at com slash Scott Feinberg. And you can follow all of my coverage between episodes at thr.com slash the race. Finally, be sure to check out the other podcasts that are part of the Hollywood Reporters Podcast Network, all of which are excellent. Leslie Goldberg and Daniel Feinberg's TV's Top 5, Seth Abramovich and Chip Pope's It Happened in Hollywood, Carolyn Giardina's Behind the Screen, and Josh Wiggler's Series Regular. On behalf of all of us at the Hollywood Reporter, thanks for tuning in.